Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I hope you're planning to be here on Saturday, August the 19th in the evening, when Bishop Justin will host a discussion here at the cathedral on the tragic de-churching that has occurred over the past few decades in the U.S. Dechurching refers to people who grow up attending church but have stopped as adults. And according to the most comprehensive study of dechurching in America, whose authors will be here the evening of August 19th, 40 million adults, American adults, have stopped attending church. In his video on our diocesan website, Bishop Justin points out that these statistics represent people we know, people we love, which has had me thinking over the past several weeks about my own family members and friends who have stopped attending church. And in some cases, the impact of that decision on their kids, some of whom have never experienced the family of God gathered for worship and sacrament. Perhaps right now you see faces of your own friends or family members, ones you love, who have left the church. To be honest, I don't know why all the de-church people that I know have left. Uh, Some cases I do, in other cases I can guess, but for others I have no idea, which means I don't know them very well. And if I don't know them really well, they probably don't know me very well, which is a sad realization. Justin goes on to mention that most de-church people report openness to returning to church and say that relationships would be their motive for coming back. So there's hope. There's hope because we, as family and friends, can be their bridges home which in many cases will mean getting to know them again and opening our hearts so that they can truly know us as well. But there's even greater hope because when they come home, they won't just be getting to know us, they'll be getting to know God, their creator and redeemer. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps building upon what they already know and nurturing what they already believe. But how can we be so sure? After all, if we zoom out from our gospel reading in in Luke chapter 9, we see lots of people misunderstanding Jesus. We see the parents of a raised child astounded by Jesus' unexpected healing power. We hear Herod trying to make sense of the miraculous activity surrounding Jesus, saying, who is this about whom I hear such things? We hear the disciples describe the public's best guesses at Jesus' identity, which included John the Baptist, Elijah, and some of the ancient prophets. And we observe Jesus repeatedly correcting the disciples' attempts to live out what they thought it meant to follow Jesus because they kept misunderstanding him, his values, and his kingdom. So, how can we be so sure that if the de-church return here with us, they will come to know God more deeply. And not just know about him, but know him. 
For that matter, why are we so confident we're growing in our knowledge of God each week? Don't we all continue to misunderstand Jesus and feel surprised at the values of his kingdom and their implications for our real lives? Yes, but that doesn't change God's commitment to make himself known to us and to our family members and our friends who have stopped coming to church. And today's lessons make that crystal clear. The beginning of Psalm 99, it emphasizes God's transcendence, reminding us that he is enthroned above and we are to worship at his footstool. But the second half of the psalm highlights his nearness, reminding us that Moses and Aaron were his priests. Samuel called on his name and he spoke to them. He forgave them. He avenged their wrongs. Yes, our holy God wants to be known. And while this is apparent in Psalm 99, it shines forth, literally shines forth in our gospel reading in at least three ways. And I invite you to turn there now. If you want to use the Bible in the pews, it's on page 53 of the New Testament. First, the obvious. Jesus included the disciples in this unique and glorious experience on the mountaintop. The passage begins, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. He took the disciples with them so that they could witness this amazing event. And the passage ends with God's voice from heaven speaking directly to the disciples. And while there are obvious parallels to the Father's words at Jesus' baptism in Luke 3, in this passage, God's words are to and for the disciples. At his baptism, God said to Jesus, You are my son. At his transfiguration, he says to the disciples, this is my son. In the Jordan, God said to Jesus, you are my beloved. On this mountain, he says to the disciples, he is my chosen. At his baptism, God said to Jesus, with you, I am well pleased. And now here, he says to the disciples, you, Peter, James, John, listen to him. The bookends of the transfiguration indicate that the disciples are welcomed by God for the purpose of knowing God. Do our de-church friends and family realize that God longs to make himself known personally to them? Again, more deeply, for the first time? Do we realize it? Are we tuned into his daily invitations to know him more fully? And are we here this morning with anticipation? Well, as we read on, we discover another insight into God's self-revelation. Not only is he inviting, but he's very kind and helpful. If we consider that the disciples were regularly being thrown off by Jesus, his words, his actions, like they were trying to stand up on a moving bus, we can imagine this event would have been especially unsettling, like the bus coming to a rapid stop or making a quick turn. However, as the scene unfolds, God gives the disciples things to hold on to, to stabilize and orient them, kind of like those vertical poles on the bus or the handles overhead that you can grab onto. The passage is full of references to God's historic interactions with Israel, references the disciples know well. 
so that as they see Jesus aglow with glory, they can grab hold of words and images that tether this new experience to a bigger story that they know to be true. For example, they are on a mountaintop and Jesus' face is shining. Matthew tells us, like the sun. Doesn't this glorious mountaintop appearance remind us of Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai that Bill read from the Old Testament reading? Continuing in verse 30, suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So now, the disciples not only sense allusions to Moses on Sinai, but Moses himself and Elijah are present. Here is the prophet of their scriptures, Moses and Elijah, who represented for them the hope of the last days when the Son of Righteousness would rise with healing in its wings, described in Malachi 4. And further, they are speaking of Jesus' exodus. Now, I know our Bibles say his departure, but the Greek word is exodos, a word that represented for Peter and James and John God's greatest act of deliverance in their history. Continuing in verse 33, just as Moses and Elijah were leaving and Peter was proposing to build tents for them, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Why? Wow, now we have a, we have a cloud. There's a cloud. How many times in the Hebrew scriptures is God's presence represented by a cloud? The disciples are on this wild ride of revelation. But this new experience of Jesus is grounded for them in Israel's experience of Yahweh. It was new revelation, but it stood on the foundation of the law and the prophets and was legitimized by the very presence of Moses and Elijah. God knows that we will be shaken and destabilized as we come to know him more and more. He is, after all, holy. But he is kind to help us receive his self-revelation. And as we continue, we see a third aspect of God's revelation to the disciples. It is invitational and kind, and it is precise. God insists that we come to know him accurately. Verse 35, then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. God tells the disciples that Jesus is his son, in allusion to Psalm 2-7, where God's son is synonymous with God's anointed, whose heritage will be the nations and whose possession will be the ends of the earth. In a sense, this is a divine amen to Peter's confession just eight days prior when he declared, you are the Messiah. However, it is more than just an amen. It is a teaching moment. As God says, Jesus is also his chosen, referencing Isaiah 42.1, where God's chosen instrument who establishes justice in the earth is powerful yet meek. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street, says the prophet. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. 
God wants Peter, James, and John to know Jesus as Messiah. But their assumptions about Messiah's character and how he will bring justice to the nations must be clarified. Jesus is God's Messiah servant who demonstrates tenderness and faithfulness rather than pomp and force, who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And God says to the disciples, to him, you shall listen. This final directive is so cool. It is the same exact wording as the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 15:18, where Moses declares, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. To him, you shall listen. And Luke concludes, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus stands alone. The prophet of whom Moses spoke has come. He is God's son and chosen servant. Listen to him. While the, while the disciples likely picked up on at least some of these references and allusions we just highlighted, we know they didn't put it all together. We don't even have to turn the page to see that. The disciples were on a journey of knowing Jesus more fully and therefore knowing God more accurately. And that journey took time. Sometimes they were frustrated on that journey, disappointed, embarrassed at times. But I believe the words of God from the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration echoed in Peter's and John's and James' ears for the rest of their lives. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. How else would they keep learning? How else would they come to know Jesus as servant Messiah and experience the riches of his grace by listening to him? I think we see evidence of this in Peter's description of this very event in our epistle reading, which he penned about 30 years later. In 2 Peter, he describes the transfiguration of Jesus as evidence of his majesty, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and even a testament to the divine nature of prophecy itself. And he was desperate to share this thoughtful perspective to refresh his listeners so that they would remember their own knowledge of him who Peter writes in verse 3, had called them by his glory and goodness. Our experience of the Lord makes sense to us and becomes helpful to others when we allow the Lord to interpret them. God was helping the disciples do this in their experience of the transfiguration, and he continued to help them as they listened to Jesus. And I'd just like to encourage our elders here this morning Grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, please tell us, and by us I mean my generation, but also our kids' generation, tell us, your children, your nieces and nephews, tell them, your grandkids, your great nephews and nieces, tell us of your experiences of God. 
His glory, His love, His grace, His mercy, His power, His faithfulness, His kindness to you. Tell us your stories, which having been processed over time in the company of Jesus, now are nestled securely in his great story. We need your refreshing wisdom, just as Peter's audience needed his. And for all of us gathered here today, whatever experience you're living right now, God is present with you and wants to use your current circumstances, be they wonderful or tragic or somewhere in between, to help you know him more. I know I'm usually more concerned with uh, how God is forming me when I think about my circumstances, how he's cleaning me up or knocking off things. And in the process, I fail to ask the simple question, God, what are you trying to show me about yourself? Or I'm wondering what he's up to so that I can somehow try and figure out what my future holds. And in the process, I miss out on just making the humble plea, Lord, please help me know you more. In other words, I'm asking transactional questions about me rather than making relational requests that are about him. Friends, if God is constantly inviting us to know him, and helping us know him accurately. We can invite our loved ones to know us. Our loved ones who are here this morning and our loved ones who aren't. And we can graciously ask to know them, to hear their stories of why they're still coming home with us each Sunday or why they've stopped coming home. So that each week we can come here together and grow together in our knowledge of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is, as the old hymn goes, and we will sing, fairest of all. And finally, as we come to this table this morning, let us recall that this very meal is a foretaste, just like seeing Jesus glorious, radiant face was a foretaste. It's a foretaste of the glory we will share in his presence when we come to know him fully, even as we are fully known. And may we receive this meal, may we receive this meal with humble expectation, remembering that the Lord loves to make himself known in the breaking of the bread. Amen.